God's word says, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Lord, would you this morning help us to know the light that is you, that we can then live as lights in this world. Lord, use this message, use my words to encourage, to exhort, even to draw people to yourself. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, who are you? Well, to understand who you are, you have to understand and know who you have been and what you will be. This last week, my family watched an interesting video of a man who was explaining how police dogs track a person. And he did all types of things to lose this dog. He would go on various paths, he would put on things, he would change the scent, all these things. But every single time, no matter what he did, the dog could almost always walk the exact same path he did and then find exactly where he was. It was incredible. Well, why? Well, because as he explained, humans lose 40,000 dead skin cells every minute. As you walk around, you're basically leaving a trace of yourself that a dog can just pick up and follow. So as you sit there for 40 minutes, you'll lose about 1,600,000 skin cells. So please clean up after yourself. In fact, we replace 330 billion cells every single day. That's equivalent to your body every day replacing 1% of all your cells. So in about 80 to 100 days, you will have 30 trillion cells replenished which is the equivalent of you being a brand new person. And that all brings up the question, is Jeremy here the same Jeremy a hundred days ago? I mean, physically speaking, no. It is a new Jeremy. And if all we are is a body, then I am not the same person. Yet if we have been made with a soul that will last forever and have to give an account to God, then yes, it is the same Jeremy, though older. Well, knowing who you are, what is your identity, makes all the difference in how you live. You know, if you don't live, I'm sorry, if you don't have a soul, then you should eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you're going to die. You should live off YOLO. You only live once. So go get all the pleasure you can in this life, because when you're dead, you're just dead. Do whatever you think is right. Follow whatever your heart tells you because you know what? None of it really matters. But the letter to the Ephesians has been giving us a much different message. It's been telling us we were made by God and for God and yet we, due to Adam and Eve, now have a will that doesn't want to submit to God. We were made for God but we wanted to follow our own path and thus God was going to punish us 
for our rebellion and disobedience. And yet we've also seen in Ephesians that God is rich in mercy. So he sent his only son, Jesus, to come live and die for us, to take our place as a substitute for our sin, taking God's wrath for us. And by faith in Jesus, we're then changed from one who's under God's wrath to one who is under his love. You know, our future now is not one of punishment, but one of being sons and daughters with an inheritance that is far beyond all that you can ask or think. Or, as Paul is saying in our passage this morning, we used to be darkness, but now we are light. Thus we should walk as children of light. To explain what that means, Paul really has two sections here. You can see this on the bulletin in the back. First, in verses 7 through 10, he's saying, don't become partners with darkness. Then he expands on that, verses 11 through 14, don't take part with darkness. So first, verses 7 through 10, don't become partners with darkness. So Paul just given some warnings right before this about not loving, living in sin and the judgment that would come from God if we continue to live in sin. Not that we sin, we all are going to sin, but we saw if you're living in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, it shows you might not be a believer. And now he says, don't become, in your Bible, might say co-partakers or partners with them. Well, Paul has used this word before. Look back at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. There, Paul writes, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers, that's the same word that we have in Ephesians 5, 7, of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So how much have we become partners with the Jews in the promises of God? Well, fully, 100%. Thus, when we come here to chapter 5, verse 7, and he says, don't become partakers or partners with them, he's not saying, don't ever hang around with those people or don't have loose affiliations. He's rather saying, don't connect with people who are in the darkness in a full and complete way. And this makes sense, because if you've fully joined and partnered with Christ, then it doesn't make sense to fully join and partner with those who are wanting to live in sin. I like live because we're never going to escape from the world. Rather, Paul's point is not that we should not seek to be part of the world in it, but not part of it. Not become full partners with those living in the world. 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says it this way, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness so in other words in our closest relationships we shouldn't be united fully with unbelievers and probably the clearest application of this is in marriage you know i think this is calling us that you should not marry an unbeliever now today most people in the u.s still claim to be a believer so i really think you need to get beyond like oh yeah i'm a christian to Well, are they actively trying to follow Christ? Are they genuinely trying to use their life for Christ? Or is that a box they check? But why would God say this? Well, let's consider some other parts of life. Imagine you want to have a baseball team. Would you get an assistant coach who doesn't like baseball? Or if you want to start growing a garden, would you pick someone to help you grow the garden who says... I don't like being outside. 
I mean, both of those, of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't want to have someone join you who doesn't like the very thing you like. So if your life is about Christ, why would you then want to join with someone who doesn't want to follow Christ? It doesn't make any sense. If you are fully committed to living for God, then you would never want your closest friend, your closest partner, to be one who doesn't share that conviction. And so here, the point again is not that we shouldn't be friends with unbelievers. That's not the point at all. Jesus was a friend of sinners, and so should we be. It's that our closest relationships should be with believers, not unbelievers. And the reason he gives is in verse 8. He says, you used to be darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now, notice Paul did not say, well, you used to be a mixture of light and dark. Nor did he say, well, you are gray or you are mostly dark. No, God says, you are darkness. On the flip side, notice in verse 8, he doesn't now say, well, you're now in the light or that you have the light. Those are both true, but that's not what he says here. Nor does he say, you're becoming more like the light, which would also be true. No, God says that if you are in Christ, you are now light in the Lord. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, but this just doesn't make any sense. Because I know some Christians, and sometimes they're rude, and they're unkind, and they're unloving. And I know some non-Christians, and they're very loving, and they're very kind, and they're very compassionate. How can Paul give these like polar opposite? Christian, you're light. Non-Christian, you're darkness. Well, the reason is, Paul's not talking about our horizontal moral actions. Sadly, it is true. There are many non-Christians who are wonderful, loving people. They care for their children. They're good workers. All those type of things. And tragically, sometimes professing Christians can be rude, harsh, and unkind. Yet Paul is not talking about that. What he's here, he's talking about our knowledge of God, our knowledge of ourselves. And let me share three areas where non-Christians are clearly in the dark. First, they're in the dark regarding the depth of God's holiness and our sinfulness. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16 says, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light. You know, due to God's radiant purity, His holiness, and then our sin, we can't approach Him. And yet, as humanity, we think we can approach God as we are. I've mentioned this several times, but I think it paints the picture well. You know, when I was in college, I served with a ministry, and we would go out and do a survey. We'd do a Ten Commandments survey. We'd ask them, how many can you name? How many do you think you've broken? And then we'd ask, well, how many do you think you could break and go to heaven? And almost every time, except once when I was interviewing a Christian, whatever they said for what they did wrong, so let's say they did five wrong, they would always say one or two more that you could do and go to heaven. So if they'd done five wrong, well, you could do six or seven and get to heaven. If they'd said they'd done two wrong, well, you could do three and four and get to heaven. The standard was always a little bit so that they fit. But, you know, even if they said, well, you could do one and get to heaven, they still would have been wrong. You can break zero and get to heaven by yourself. Or you could break all ten by the power of Christ and his forgiveness and get into heaven. Because God dwells in 
unapproachable light. Didn't say hard to approach or he's mostly pure. God dwells because of his holiness in unapproachable light. And humanity is in the dark regarding the depth of God's holiness and our, our sinfulness. Second, we are in the dark regarding the only response to our condition. Jesus said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So how do we have the light of life? How could we approach God who's absolute purity and holiness? If we have the light of the world, Jesus. You know, and we have him simply by repenting of our sins and trusting in him. You know, the proper response is not go to church, become more religious, do more good things than bad. That's like making a cake and as you have the blender going, you crack an egg and as it drops in, you go, oh, that egg's rotten. Well, you can double, triple, you can quadruple the cake and you can keep adding more ingredients, but that batter's never going to become a good batter. The only solution is to turn off the blender, dump it all out, probably go and take it out to the trash can outside, and start all over. Our condition is so bad that we can't just say, okay, I'm just going to add a little bit more. If I do double or triple my good stuff, that's going to overcome the bad. No, our sin has tainted our whole being, and the only solution is the light of the world, Jesus, who came. And humanity is in the dark regarding the only response to our condition being Jesus Christ. And third, humanity is in the dark to the beauty and glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At various times throughout the year, you might see on the History Channel or something like that, uh, look, or so they claim, into the historical Jesus. And they may talk about how Jesus was from Nazareth, and they may even say he was a great philosopher, he had great ethics. He was a compassionate man. But I guarantee you, they will never say, and he was the glory of God come in the flesh. Because they are blind to that reality. Humanity is in the dark regarding the beauty and glory of Christ. So yes, humanity, even without Christ, can be kind and moral. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He's saying... Darkness is not knowing about God's holiness, about our own sinful condition, and that we have no hope, and in the dark about the hope of Christ and His beauty. And what a kind and loving God we serve, that He wants us to know the light. God doesn't want you stumbling around in this life, bumbling through. God desires for you to know what is life and to enjoy it. And so He sent His Son to be the light. You remember what happened when Jesus was on the cross? It says that darkness fell upon the land. Darkness fell because Jesus was taking what we deserve, the darkness, so that by paying for our sin, by paying for the punishment for it, 
we might have his light in his life. And so perhaps as you look at your life, you feel like you're in the darkness. You look, I don't know what to do. There's no path ahead. You feel like I'm just meandering through life. I don't know what I'm here for. Well, God offers you to himself through his son, Jesus. And he, the light of the world, will guide your path. Well, the implication of being in the light is in verse 8 and 9, that they should therefore walk as children of light. And he doesn't leave this amorphous. He then gives three ways that'll look. If you're walking in the light, you'll have goodness, righteousness, and truth in your life. You know, goodness, one of the fruits of the Spirit. Even one of the, even in this letter, Paul's talked about this. Ephesians 2.10, if you look back there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He's talking about, you know, when you're saved, not by good works, but saved by grace. It then says, 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, if we're living in the light of Christ, if we're the light of Christ, then there will be goodness flowing out of our life. Well, second, he said there's righteousness, which he's also already discussed. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Ephesians 4, verse 24, he's talking about how we've been made new people. And he says, for we are his workmanship, created, I'm sorry, that's Ephesians 4, 24. He says, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, living in the light means we're going to live in line with God's righteous character, His rules and laws that He's given us. And third, Paul tells us, living in the light will mean living in the truth. Look at Ephesians 4.15. It says, rather than deceitfulness, we're going to speak the truth in love. Or Ephesians 4.25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Well, why is living in the light, why is being the light going to lead to goodness, righteousness, and truth? Well, because those are all attributes of God. If we're walking in the light as God is light, then we will look like God in his moral attributes. And then Paul adds an important qualifier. Look at verse 10. He says in chapter 5, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. To discern something is to test it, to examine it. And we have to do this because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so we're going to be presented with things that go, well, that looks like light. If we follow that, that's going to be what God wants. And yet that is Satan tempting us. Thus the scripture warns us to test prophets, test teachers, you shouldn't even take everything I'm saying as gospel truth. You should hold it up against God's word because you need to test everything, even everything that I say by God's word. And that kind of gets to how we do this because if we held to the idea, well, every person's really kind of a mix of the darkness and the light, well, then we might say, so you need to look in and in yourself determine what's leading you right and what's leading you wrong. And yet, if we are darkness, then we need to look to the only source of light. And the only source of pure light, unadulterated light, is God and His Word. We have to do what we're told in Romans 12 too, and that is 
do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, same thing, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need our minds renewed. You know, we shouldn't look in, we should look out to God's word and God's people to help guide us. What is being said here is really important because, yes, there is objective truth. There are objective right and wrongs that we can point to. And yet, there are many times in life when we don't know exactly what is right or wrong in this situation. And children, you know about this because you have to live with this. Because when your sibling was 10, they got to do X, Y, and Z. And now you're 10 and you go, I get to do... And they go, well, no, we're not going to let you do that. And you say, that's not fair. When they were my age, they got to do that. Or normally it's the flip age. Why do they get to do that now? When I was their age, I didn't get to do that yet. Well, it's because parents have to look at different children. Child A could care less what anyone else thinks. They're going to obey and do what's right. So the parents go, Yeah, we can go let them hang out with their friends because you know what? They're the type of person who's grounded and they're not going to just follow the crowd. Child B craves people's attention, craves what people think about them. And so if they go with the crowd, they're going to do whatever the crowd says. So the parents aren't going to tell child A and child B the same things because they're different children. You know, we need to be discerning people. To know sometimes what's good, what's better, and what's best. And sometimes what's good in one situation is bad in another. We don't have time to turn there and look. But a great exercise to think about is to read Acts 15 and then read the beginning of Acts 16. Because in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council meets and they tell the churches, you do not need to be circumcised. And yet, the beginning of Acts 16, the Apostle Paul takes the disciple Timothy and he goes and he has him be circumcised. It seems like Paul doesn't even just understand what they just said. And yet, it's not hypocrisy and it's not him giving a double standard. The issue was in Acts 15, people were saying, for you to be saved, you have to be circumcised. And at that point, Paul and all the others say, no, 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 we are not going to circumcise anyone. For the sake of them being saved. But in Acts 16, the issue was if Timothy doesn't get circumcised, then he can't go even in the midst of a Jewish synagogue. So for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of interacting with people who don't know Christ, Paul will have Timothy do the exact thing that he forbid in the prior chapter. And all that to point out that life takes wisdom. It takes discernment. And it's easy on the internet to take pot shots and everyone, oh, I can't believe they did this here and did that there. Well, we don't have all their circumstances. We don't have all the factors that led to their decisions. Now, I'm not saying morals are relative, but we do need to realize there are some issues in life where each Christian needs discernment. And we shouldn't go through that alone. Ask godly people in this church. Read God's word. Read good books to help you know what that looks like. Well, Paul then takes this point. Don't be partners with them. And he takes the next logical step. Well, if you're not going to be partners with someone, then you're not going to take part in what they do. And that's the next four verses, verses 11 through 14, our second section. Don't take part 
with darkness. And that's what verse 11 says. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, these ideas have been really misunderstood. So I want to give you two ways that this should be lived out, and then one way it shouldn't. Talk away, it doesn't mean. Now, the first is the personal application of not taking part with people in their sin, and what he calls the unfruitful works of darkness. We should do this personally. This is Daniel in the Old Testament, who he's living in the foreign palace, and they're telling him to eat foods that he does not believe he should eat. And so he says, is there anything else I can do? He is not wanting to take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. For us today, that might be when you hear what everyone is going to go watch as a movie, you go, I'm not going to watch that as a Christian. It might be as they start to tell those jokes that you don't laugh. Or when you hear things they're wanting you to applaud that you don't applaud. I hope whatever it is for your circumstance, you realize there are some things that my friends want to do who aren't Christians, and I, when they want to do that, I have to say, well, I'm going to head on home now. I'll see you tomorrow. Because I'm not going to take part in those actions. So that's personal. But second, there's also a corporate or church application of not taking part with them in their sin. You know, the New Testament has a clear distinction between those who are part of the church and those who are not. Thus, it could write in Acts chapter 2 about people being added to their number. Well, you can't add something to a number if you don't have a number clearly defined already. Or Acts 6, there's an issue in the church and the 12 disciples, it says they summoned the full number of the disciples to discuss the issue. How can I say I have the full number of anything if I don't have a number, if it's just amorphous? You know, is Joe, there's no Joe here, but is Joe here just a regular attender? Is he a part of WFBC? Is there anything if Joe wanted to join that we would need to say? You need to have this, believe this, do that, or can Joe move in and out as he pleases? In the New Testament, there was a clear definition who is in and who is out. That's why 2 Corinthians 2, it could talk about an action done by the majority. Again, you can't have a majority if you don't have a group that you can have a number from. And you can't remove something if there's no kind of parameter for moving it in or out. And we could go on talking about how church leaders were to give an account for those who are under us. Well, if there's no clear group, who is there an accounting given for? The point is clear, though, that in the New Testament and thus today, there should be in each church a clear distinction of, well, who is a part and who is not. Now, here we thought the term member is helpful, but you can look from Genesis to Revelation and you'll never find that term. The point is not so much the word, but there should be a clear commitment to a local church and a clear commitment from that local church to the person. And as with 2 Corinthians 2, so our passage here, this is important because we need to have nothing to do with believers if they're living in the unfruitful works of darkness. Every Christian, myself included, will battle sin. But if there's a sin that we know of, Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 to go and talk to the person about it. And if they won't repent, then you're supposed to get someone else, Jesus tells us, and go talk to them. If they still won't repent, Jesus says to bring that issue to the church. 
And if they won't listen to the church, then Jesus says to treat them as an outsider. And Paul is saying a similar thing here. Look at verse 11. He says, take no part, but then he says, but instead expose them. Now, the point is not anytime there's a sin, we're going to bring it in front of the whole church. The point is when you will continually tell other Christians, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to obey Christ. I can live my life as I want. Well, then we're hopefully tearfully going to say, well, that's not what a follower of Jesus is like. And if you're not going to repent, then we're not going to continue to say, yeah, you're welcome as a member here because we want to affirm people who are, that we, as far as we can tell, are genuinely saved. As Jesus said in Matthew 18, so Paul writes 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, now notice the word, persist in sin, doesn't say as for those who ever commit a sin, as for those who persist in sin, they won't repent, rebuke them in the presence of all. You know, we want to be the light of the Lord, so we don't want to affirm people who are walking in the darkness. And yet, I'm sure many are thinking, well, that's kind of harsh. I mean, we're Christians. Aren't we supposed to love people and accept them? How in the world could you ever love someone when you're saying you can no longer be a part of our church? And, I mean, beyond that, aren't we dealing with private lives? I mean, what I do in my private life, isn't that up to me? And what you do in your private life, isn't that up to you? Well, if you're a non-Christian, then yes. I have... No reason to come to any non-Christian and tell them how they should lead their life. But if you want to join with other Christians, then there are Christian codes of conduct that God has given us. And so, really this is getting to a basic question. And that is, what does our sin do in our relationship with God? Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So if our sin makes a separation from God, then why would we tell people, but that doesn't cause any issue in our church? We would be lying to those people to go, you know what, you're fine with God because you're fine with us. No, we want our church to be saying what God says. You know, we don't want to give the impression that your sin's really okay It doesn't cause any separation. Out of love for the person, we don't let them believe that they continue in their sin unrepentantly, and then it doesn't matter. As well, out of love for others, we don't allow them to continue in unrepentant sin or false teaching. You see, God's design for the church is more than that we just show up for an event once a week on a Sunday morning. You know, our call is to be a picture of God's kingdom on earth. That people can walk in our midst and go, wow, that's what the light is like. There's light in this dark world. Yet if an unbeliever comes in and as they walk around, they're like, you know, these people over here, they're clearly living together and not married and no one even cares. These people over here, they're doing all these other things. No one even cares. They're going to go, well, being a Christian doesn't really make much difference. In your life. Or if the church, if we allow people to continue to say false things, now I'm not talking on secondary matters, but truly heretical things, and we go, oh, well, you know, it would be unloving to tell them they can't teach that. Well, then we're no longer being a pure light to these 
people as they come in because they're hearing true and false ideas. Thus, if someone is removed for the right reasons and in the right way, then it is the most loving thing we can do for that person, that church, the world, and God. The goal is not to be vindictive or to punish, but rather the goal is to help them, to maintain the unity, purity, and holiness of the church, and to honor God. And yet, people often apply this the wrong way. So let me give this third thing as we wrap up. This does not mean we should not be around darkness or the world. So to say that positively, we should be around darkness in the world. You know, Paul's point was not to take part in their sin. Let's see how this was misunderstood by flipping back a few books. We're in Ephesians, there's Galatians, 2 Corinthians, and then go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So going backwards, we have Ephesians, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 9. So Paul here says, I wrote to you in my letter, so one before 1 Corinthians, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or violent drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul had written to them about these issues, but they misapplied them. They said, oh, well, we know those wicked people. They're the non-Christians, so we're not going to hang out with them. And Paul's like, no, 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 that wasn't my point. I'm saying if someone's saying I'm a Christian and they were, are living in a lifestyle that doesn't want to obey Christ, those are the people that you need to talk to and warn and rebuke. And if they won't change and they keep taking the name Christian, those you need to not associate with. You know, the point here is, yes, we should be distinct from the culture in our actions, but we shouldn't separate ourselves from the culture. Those we should separate ourselves from as a church are those who are taking the name of Christ while living in unrepentant sin. You know, sadly, Christians in the U.S. have often completely flipped this around. You know, most Christians won't bat an eye if a couple in their church is living together before they're married. Many are fine if there's members who are gossiping or slandering. Even this week, I was reminded of some Christians I know who say, well, I'm not going to pray for the president. I don't like him. I don't respect him. <coughs> Yet those are things the Bible calls us to do. Those are unrepentant things. Those are the things that Paul says, look, purge that from your midst. You know, the Bible is clear. We should want non-Christians in our lives. 1 Corinthians 14 even talks about unbelievers being in our worship service. We should desire that. And then we shouldn't be surprised if an unbeliever joins us if they're living in a lifestyle that doesn't honor God. What we should be sad about is when there are Christians who want to join, who have no desire to obey God. You know, we are and should be in the world, but not of it or shaped by it. And if you flip back to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul ends that this could have a wonderful possibility that comes from it. Because in verse 14 he says, 
For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now the it is a little unclear. It might be verse, uh, sorry, Isaiah 60 verse 1, but it's not exactly a quote. It might be something from something they would say when a Christian was baptized. Whatever it is, it's clearly describing someone who's come to faith in Christ. You know, what does it mean to become a Christian? Well, the Bible tells us it's to go from being dead to being alive. Not from going from being sick to being healthy. That's good. No, you are dead and you come to life. You know, this next week I'm going to go to Houston for the funeral of an uncle. Thankfully, I was able to see him a few weeks ago. And I expect many things to be said and many things to be done at this funeral. But I don't expect him to sit up. I don't expect him to talk. I don't expect him to move or do anything because he's dead. That is God's assessment of our spiritual condition outside of Christ. That we are dead. Not on the hospital ER bed that, you know, things are looking pretty grim. But, you know, if we get some treatment in here, triage, we're going to keep them dead. And the only hope is Christ. But if he comes, he calls, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Just as Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. So he still today calls men and women and says, come forth. And if you trust in Christ, you can move from being dead to being alive. And that's what he's saying here, that the light might make this possible. How is this the case? It's because of our good conduct. As they see us, the light of life, they're drawn to it. You know, Peter explains this, 1 Peter 3, about how wives can lead their husbands to salvation. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, of course, there's some hyperbole there. No one can just watch someone and then become a Christian. Eventually, you need to talk to them and explain who Christ is and our sin and how you're saved. And yet the point is that the conduct, the light of the wife's life will win them over. If you've ever been camping or in a place where the light goes out, you know that we humans have a bad habit with flashlights. We see someone and we go, and we shine that thing right in their eyes. We don't mean to. We know you shouldn't. But it's just the reaction. We want to see who it is. And what do they do? Ah, so out of my eyes. Sometimes Christians are like that with the truth. We shine it right in their eyes. And what do they want? Nothing to do with it. You know, if we want to help someone when it's dark, when we're out camping, you don't shine the light right in their eyes. You use the light. And as you use the light, they're helped. As you walk down the path, they can walk right behind you because they can see where you're going. And as our life is like 1 Peter 3, as we live our lives in a way that's respectful and honorable, they go, wow, they're getting down the path. How did they do that? You know, I know what my boss said to them and how they treated them. They still talk respectfully about them in the, in the workroom. You know, I know what their life is like in this way, and they're still acting like this. What is going on in the light is shining in the darkness. And so as I began, who are you? 
God's word tells us you're not just a clump of cells that's replenishing itself every hundred days. You are made in God's image. You have a soul that will last forever. Yes, there is sin. Yes, there is darkness. And yet God promises, look, when he calls to you, if you will respond, if you will hear his voice, if you will say, Father, forgive me. I trust in your son. I want to turn from my sins and follow you. You can go from death to life. So awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Lord, we often are not much of a pure light for you. And so we ask forgiveness, but we thank you that it's not the purity of our light, it's the perfection of your Son that's our hope. And so, Lord, would you help us even today to repent of those areas where we need to? And would we, as individuals, would we as a church be a pure light in this community? Would it really be able to be said of us, as it is in 1 Corinthians 14, that when unbelievers come amongst us, they would say, truly, God is with them. So, Lord, that will only happen by a work of you. And so we ask for that, that we would be that pure light for you in this dark world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.